Our lectionary text for this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Listen now for the word of God. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Lawyers. It's always the lawyers, isn't it? <laughs> Today in our gospel lesson, we find a lawyer who is stirring up trouble for Jesus again. You all know this story. Most of you know this story so well that we can give the right answer to the question Jesus asked the lawyer even before Jesus tells the story. Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Answer, the one who showed him mercy. Most of us know the story so well that we hardly even hear it anymore. It's hard to hear uh, the power of this parable because we assume we know what it means, right? That we're called to be like the Good Samaritan and help the man in the ditch. We've gotten the lesson of the Good Samaritan down so well that we have named laws after him, long-term care facilities, even a Boy Scout merit badge, completely forgetting that he was and never will be one of us. He was the enemy. He was the other side. Shortly before Jesus told this story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that uh, Jesus was refused lodging in a Samaritan village because Samaritans didn't like Jews any more than Jews like Samaritans. 
They despised and hated and ostracized each other. So much so that Jesus' disciples wanted him to call down fire from the sky to burn that village up. Social theorists say that there's something diabolical about the human self that needs some other in order to establish its own identity. Left to our own devices, we need an other, an, an outsider, to define who the insiders are. And we can see this clearly in our own country today, can't we? Some politicians run their whole campaign not on what they're for, but what they're against, or who they're against. Scott Black Johnson, uh, the pastor at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York, noted that there are people around the world who get paid to fabricate stories for social media with the entire point to make readers angry at another group. And it's working. NPR reports that 84% of Americans identify that they are angrier now than they were a generation ago. We're angry at the folks on the other side. We're angry at the media that supports them. Those folks who don't share our particular brand of anger. It's impossible to get to lunchtime, isn't it? Without hearing something, seeing something, experiencing something that makes us angry. Public discourse has become so hostile. No place is safe anymore have honest, vulnerable conversations about the complexities of our common life. Even the church has had to choose between loving all of God's people and having these very important, very polarizing conversations for fear of fostering more hate and exclusion. Leaving the only place to go for folks is back into our echo chambers where it's safe. We no longer trust that someone may be genuinely seeking understanding. Now it seems like everyone's got an agenda. And each conversation feels like a trap. That's what we find in today's reading. Luke tells us a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this question is not a real question. It's a test question. Luke says he asks the question to test Jesus. And that word test is the same kind of testing that Satan did to Jesus when he was in the wilderness. It's a test question. You guys know that. Questions people ask. Questions they already know the answers to, or at least they think they know the answers to. They just want to test you and see if you know the answers to them or see if you're going to give the answer that they want you to give. They're litmus test questions. And in good rabbinical fashion, Jesus answers the lawyer's question with another question. What's written in the law? What do you read there? Woody Allen tells the story of a man who asks his rabbi, why does a rabbi always answer a question with another question? 
The rabbi thought a moment and said, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with another question? <laughs> but like a good lawyer, he was already ready with a response. Stitching together the two passages we just heard, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You got it, Jesus answers. You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asks Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. You heard how Jesus told it, but here's the summary. There was a man traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and along the way he was attacked by a band of robbers who beat him, stripped him, and threw him in a ditch to die. They discarded him like the rest of the trash we find in the ditch, like an object that had no value. And a priest and then a Levite came by, and we expect each one of them to help, but neither does. Their avoidance is not accidental, it's intentional. They see the man in the ditch, we're told, and they pass by on the other side of the road. What was happening in the hearts of these religious leaders that made it possible for them to see a human being being discarded in a ditch as though he were trash and walk by on the other side? Some scholars speculate that these clergy wanted to maintain their ritual purity. Others think that maybe they feared the man on the ground was a robber himself, counting on their sympathy to attack. But before we get too judgmental, what happens to us when we see people who have been attacked spiritually, physically, emotionally, economically, and we intentionally walk by on the other side of the road? But in walks the Samaritan. And if there are ancient hostilities between their people, the Samaritan ignores them. If there are any moral or physical dangers involved, the Samaritan disregards them. If he and this half-dead man are theologically so far apart, you wouldn't know it. Because all that matters now is that he come near to this man. He gets proximate, as Brian Stevens says. He comes near enough to see him, near enough to be moved with compassion, near enough to show him mercy. I wonder what was the difference between the Samaritan and the other two. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says that the first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Bishop Desmond Tutu has given me some language to help me understand this. 
when Bishop Tutu became the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Cape Town, South Africa in 1986, he preached this sermon titled, Agents of Transfiguration. And in that sermon, he talks about this Zulu or Kosa word, Umbutu. He said that there's really no English translation, but quote, you know when it's present and you miss it when it's absent. Bishop Tutu says what Umbutu means is to bind together, to be bound together in the bundle of life. I love that image. Being bound up together in the bundle of life. And if we're bound up together in the bundle of life, it means that your joys are my joys. Your pain is my pain. Your success is my success. Your struggles are my struggles. Your victory is my victory. And when we're bound up together in the bundle of life, we don't have the luxury of separating ourselves from the circumstances of those around us. We can't function as if it's us or them because we're all bound up together. Jesus finishes the story by asking a question of his own. You remember it? The question was, which one of these was the neighbor to the man? Do you see what happened there? He flipped the question. He took the question away from the lawyer, who is my neighbor, and he gave it to the man in the ditch, who was his neighbor. A question the lawyer can't answer without putting himself in the place of the man in the ditch. This is so like Jesus, right? His point is, you're never going to get to the right answer until you get the right question. And very often, we're not asking Jesus the right question. Because as long as the question is, who is my neighbor, that puts me at the center of it. Then I'm the one who sets the agenda, and I'm the one who organizes the neighborhood around me. Gosh, we love to place ourselves in the center. I mean, have you ever wondered why so many people think of themselves as centrists? Whether it's politics or church debates, I've never seen a debate when someone comes to the microphone and says, um, yes, I'd like to speak for the lunatic fringe. No. We all think of ourselves as centered and everyone else is to the left or to the right of us. We're a divided nation where everyone seems to be taking one side of the road or the other or, or just trying to navigate the middle. But Jesus here He's calling us to get off the road altogether and step into the ditch. Not as a Samaritan, as we sometimes like to think of ourselves. No, he's calling us to recognize that we're the wounded one in the ditch. And from that perspective, from the perspective of the ditch, anyone who stops to help you, and I mean anyone, is your new best friend or your neighbor as Jesus puts it. I mean, have you ever been to an emergency room where someone stops the doctor and says, no, wait, 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 wait. Before you operate on me, are we talking Republican or Democrat here? Before I let you do this procedure, um, what's your stance on this? No, 
ask questions like that, all that they ask is that you show them mercy. That's all they're interested in. Who is your neighbor? Not the one who looks like you or thinks like you or worships like you, but the one who shows you mercy when you are in most need of it. I try to imagine how this story might play out in our time. It would certainly happen at a cocktail party, don't you think? Maybe you're there dressed professionally, you know, to make some connections. And you notice Jesus over at the bar and there's tons of people around him just listening to what he has to say. And so you sidle up to the bar, order a drink, and then kind of push your way through the crowd until you get right into his line of sight. And he turns and starts talking to you. And wanting to make a good impression, you mention some book you're reading, Six Steps to a Better Life, or, and you toss out the question, so, so Jesus, what do you think is the key to eternal life? What's our purpose as Christians? And Jesus asks, well, what does scripture say? And you respond with a very Presbyterian ex explanation of what it means to be Christian, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But then, suspicious of the people who've hurt you, you say, um, who is my neighbor exactly? And Jesus tells you this story. So you're walking down the road from Birmingham to Mountain Brook, and somewhere off of University Boulevard, some thugs jump you and jack your stuff. They give you a beat down, strip you of your favorite shirt, and leave you half dead in the gutter. You're bedraggled. You no longer look like the respectable citizen, but more like someone on the losing end of a speed bender. And the entire assault was captured on a bystander's cell phone and immediately uploaded to Facebook within seconds. Presbyterian minister walks by and seeing you, he crosses to the other side of the road. Though you faintly hear him mumble thoughts and prayers as he passes. <laughs> Presuming you to be the homeless and strung out, he makes a note on his phone to suggest a session that the church create a committee and develop a statement that can be posted on the website about the church's response to violence, drugs, and homelessness. And a social worker walks by and thinks to herself that she would love to stop, but they are so beyond capacity right now. And it's really important for them not to extend themselves too far so that they can focus on the clients that they have. Thoughts and prayers, surely. Now, by the time the two have passed you, hundreds of thousands of people have left horrible comments on your video of your assault either expressing racist comments about the attackers or rants about the Second Amendment or, pol or police. Meanwhile, you're still bleeding. But then you look up, and the answer to your problems is miraculously ambling down the road towards you. But hold on. This person is the very last person you could imagine being any help the kind of person you were taught never to associate with. 
the person, the person your preferred news outlet says is the enemy. And behind all your southern politeness, you secretly despise this person. This is your Samaritan. And you think, surely, they've come to finish me off. But then they see you, and their heart is moved. They drop their phone and they rush to you. They put pressure on your bleeding wounds. They call an Uber and help load you in. They take you to the ER at UAB and cover the cost of your care. They take you to the Marriott, as they then pay your bill in full. And then Jesus looks at you and asks you, which of these three was your neighbor? The Presbyterian minister with his committees, the overworked social worker with their boundaries and self-care, or the dreaded Samaritan who saves your life? And I'm so annoyed with Jesus at this moment because he has just shown me something about this parable that I've never seen before. And now that I see it, I can't unsee it. That I'm the man in the ditch. And Jesus, the one standing right in front of me, he is the good Samaritan. Jesus, the one who was despised and rejected, the one who binds up our wounds and bears his burden when we couldn't, the one who takes us to the place of greater safety and makes a home for us when we were strangers and promises to return back for a time of reckoning. Jesus is the Samaritan, and we're the ones in the ditch. And this is good news for the self-justifying lawyer in us because there's no self-justification necessary. Inheriting eternal life doesn't come from our ability to be good, but in our having received mercy. But this good news is only good once you've given up your ideas about who is good and who is bad. Because the form Jesus takes to meet our need is that of the person we despise, hate, and ostracize. Everything else in us resists the idea that we could have anything to receive from this person. But this is the moment of our conversion. Not just that we see our need for Jesus, but that we're willing to embrace him in the form in which he comes to us. That we're willing to receive the healing and forgiveness and eternal life that comes through the person we couldn't believe had anything to offer us. Then and only then can we hear Jesus' words, go and do likewise. Go and continue to see the face of Jesus in the despised and the rejected in the world. You're not their benefactor. You're not the answer to their prayer. They're the answer to yours. Don't assume that others will see Jesus' face in you. Go and expect to see Jesus' face in them. There's this story about a rabbi who asked his students, how can one determine the hour in which the night ends and the day begins? Is it when a person can distinguish a sheep from a dog at a distance? One student asked. No, 
said the rabbi, it's not. Is it when you can distinguish between a fig tree and a grapevine, asked another student. It's not that either, replied the teacher. Well, well, please then, tell us the answer, the students begged. It is when, said the rabbi, when you look into the face of another human being and you have enough light to recognize that it is your sibling. Until then, night is still with us. We live in a world where it is so easy to pass by one another. We've got news channels catering to our convictions. We filter information so as to reinforce our positions. We've created a culture of canceling people, what is called cancel culture, where we believe we can dismiss people. But you cannot delete a human being. You cannot delete their suffering. You cannot unfriend their pain. Because we are all bound up together in Mbutu the bundle of life. I know my time is up, so I'll wrap this up right now, but I ask IPC today, what would it look like for this church to get in the ditch? What would it look like to come together as a collective community and see each other's pain and stand with each other in the ditch? Because we believe that God is love and love isn't afraid to get its hands dirty. What would it look like to approach all our relationships, all our conversations with honesty and vulnerability. Because God is love, and love takes risks. It crosses boundaries and borders. What would it look like in our politics, in our theology, if we learned the power of saying, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Because God is love, and love is being humble enough to admit that we don't have it all figured out. What would it look like in our woundedness to come near each other, near enough to show compassion, near enough to recognize a neighbor in the one that you despise and receive the grace that can only come from them? What would it look like? It would look like eternal life, the life that God has freely given us in Jesus Christ. Let us now go and do likewise. Amen.